Our epistle lesson today is a continuation of the same lesson that we've been reading as our epistle for the last couple of weeks, chapter 12 of St. Paul's letter to the Romans. In the first week, we heard uh, St. Paul admonishes Roman congregants to offer themselves a living sacrifice to God, which, by the way, we actually do in the liturgy uh, during the oblation prayers, right after, during the consecration part. Um, you'll hear me say, body and soul, offer ourselves body and soul to God. In last week's lesson, we heard St. Paul encouraging the Roman Christians to serve the church with their spiritual gifts and to live and behave like Christians. In this week's lesson, we get a continuation of the same message. Please read with me through our passage in the New King James translation that's in your pew Bible in front of you, the Black Bible. It's page 765. Page 765, Romans chapter 12. And it begins at the latter part or the second half of verse 16. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This kind of living looks pretty good, doesn't it? It looks actually like the peace of Christ beginning to reign in the world. And that reign of Christ being brought about by Christ's servants. You and I, those that make up the church. And this should not surprise us for... Essentially, St. Paul has argued over and over again in all of his letters, and Jesus has basically said in his life on earth, this is how you should live. This is how it ought to be. This movement of the church towards holiness and the church as the agent of peace and redemption in the world is, an all, excuse me, is also given a bit of emphasis in our text by Paul's use of the word evil. And that at the beginning and the end of our lesson. Repay no one evil for evil, and then at the end a reminder of that idea, but extrapolated even further by the command not to be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The church is to manifest the redemptive work of Christ, which starts with his incarnation, his becoming human. And Epiphany, of course, is the season of manifestation. It's the season in which we're reminded of Christ being shown forth. The coming of the light into the dark, dark world. The coming of the king of the world into his kingdom. Our gospel lesson this morning brings us right into the theme of Epiphany. 
St. John states it clearly at the end of our lesson. This beginning of signs Jesus did at Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory and his disciples believed in him. This is the first miracle, the first presentation of who he really was and is with miraculous signs. As one commentator puts it, Christ had not yet given any sign of the invisible and eternal glory which the evangelist St. John in his prologue had claimed for him. Way back at the beginning of the Gospel of John, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was God. He had not in his own person manifested the unique majesty of his will, nor revealed the direction in which the power he wielded would most freely move. But here at the wedding at Cana, Christ manifests forth his glory, probably particularly to the disciples. And the result is that his disciples believed in him. One of the interesting things about the passage, besides the interaction Jesus has with Mary, his mother, which is, I always thought, a little humorous, one of the interesting things is the, uh, the context for this, his first miracle. He and his disciples have been invited to a wedding at Cana, a town about four miles northwest of Nazareth. This seems just a normal, typical small-town affair. Either the bride or the groom apparently knew Jesus and his family, very likely knew Mary, uh, as we see both Jesus and Mary at the wedding. The families must have known each other fairly well as Jesus brings his disciples with him. So Mary's friend's daughter, say, is getting married, and of course she's invited, and Jesus is part of the family, and Jesus says, well, look, I've got all these guys hanging out with me, can they come too? Oh, of course, yeah, you know, you guys are like family. You know how that works. You know how you go, oh, yeah, okay, sure. At this wedding, Jesus manifests forth his glory of his own volition. That is, it is not God speaking of his son as he is transfigured or as he is baptized. Thus, it is known as his first miracle. It's Jesus himself manifesting forth who he is, rather than at his baptism where God speaks, uh, at transfiguration, God spe the Father speaks. Interestingly, the names of the couple are not mentioned. You see, though we can tell it is a rather local gathering, the names of the couple are not the important part of what we need to understand from the text. Now, normally, if we attend a wedding, the names of the couple, the couple themselves, are very important, and they are central. But even in our Christian weddings, if we see them aright, if we see them correctly, it's not the couple that is the ultimate importance, even in our own weddings that we celebrate. It's that the couple represents Jesus and his bride, the church. That's what a Christian wedding ultimately is all about. In this text, the couple is not important at all. It's not what we're supposed to be getting out of it. Um, this is actually, if you will, the blessing of the married state itself. That's what's going on here. 
as we see in the teaching on marriage from the church. But this morning, the third Sunday in Epiphany, I don't believe that the married state is the focus of the text for us today. Really, I think the focus of the text for us today is related to the epistle lesson, where we saw the picture of the church bringing the peace of the manifested Savior of the world to the world. The context for his first miracle is that which signifies the relationship he will have as the bridegroom with the church, his bride. We are brought back to the basic relationship that God's people are blessed to have with God, a marriage covenant. Adam and Eve lost this relationship with God, and indeed their own marriage and marriages in general have been suffering the effects of sin ever since the fall. Yet God chose a people and wedded himself to this people so that they might bring the salvation of God to the world. This people fundamentally failed. Israel failed in her job to bring peace to the world. But yet, on the other hand, they didn't because Christ, Jesus, is the true Israel. So, in effect, Abraham's seed succeeded in Christ even though the rest of the nation did not do so well. Christ, the true Israel, redeemed this people's mission and became the bridegroom for the new people of God, the new bride of Christ himself, the church, you and me. May we be reminded of the glory of the incarnate Lord and of his blessedness to us as our husband redeemer. And may we, like his disciples, believe on him and live the life that abhors evil, doesn't repay evil for evil, and brings about the goodness of the new creation. Amen.